In this episode of To Be or Not To Be, we're going to look at just one line in Hamlet's famous soliloquy, not even a particularly well-known line, to see how Shakespeare packs complex and multiple meanings into just a few words, and to hear how neuroscientists have zeroed in on the same line to investigate the startling effect which Shakespeare has on our brains. Professor Simon Palfrey is one of the most brilliant and original close readers of Shakespeare in the world today. He specialises in unpicking the simultaneous meanings and complex linguistic patterns which compete for our attention in a speech like Hamlet's. With Shakespeare, any speech unit, however small, can be a kind of capsule of drama, a capsule of action, a capsule of possibility. The sentence is not the primary semantic syntactic or semantic unit in Shakespeare. It's much more the kind of phrase, I think. The phrase we're going to look at comes towards the end of the soliloquy. As he reaches a bleak conclusion that conscience does make cowards of us all, Hamlet says, And thus the native hue of resolution is sickly dour with the pale cast of thought. Shakespeare famously invented, repurposed and repackaged words, and this is a very good example. It's the first recorded moment in the history of English literature where the adjective sickly is used as a verb. His sickly dour with a pale cast of thought. It's a typically Shakespearean technique called functional shift, and it means changing the grammatical purpose of a word. So in this case, he takes an adjective, sickly, and changes it into a much stranger verb, too sickly. It has a transformational effect, giving an unremarkable word fresh dramatic energy and new meaning. The thing that the functional shift does is it brings physical dynamism to what was otherwise a kind of finished adjective, an adjective which so sickly simply modifies a noun, a sickly person, for example, a sickly face. But to be sicklied, oh, you've got sicklied with the pale cast of thought. Now, cast most specifically means to, means here vomited, right? To, to to be cast up, to be thrown up. So, um, thought here is imagined as something which is physical, as something which is a kind of actual vomit. Now, cast also means colouring. The native hue is to do with colour. Pale cast is to do with colour. But what, what, you've, what you've mainly got is Hamlet's kind of trademark disgust, his sort of nausea here. It's, it's thought which casts the vomit. It's, it's kind of a disgusting and disgusted image, which is kind of animated by the, the, the functional shifts. People often ask me about, you know, Shakespeare's difficulty and how to read it and so forth. Um, and I always say it's, it's actually really, really simple. Shakespeare's difficult, obviously, but... The way to understand his, his language is just to take it literally. And by literally, I mean physically. He works with the physical origin of the action. So that it, it might be to do with farming or a granary or sweating or whatever. And here it's to do with the, the very simple idea of being sick. A body, everyone's been sick in their lives. It's the most basic thing that children do. You know, they vomit or you vomit when you're ill. He just feels or sees or touches the, 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 the kind of the deep history in words, I think. Um, and it's why he's a folk, he's kind of a, I think he's a folk writer, really. He's a writer of, of a popular writer for that reason, because, it's, because the experiences are always shared. 
if if you if you sort of were able to magnify the world and instead of seeing you know a, a, a tree or a face you 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 begin to see all the work that goes into the construction and the ma- the maintaining of those things the past of those things that the things you see the work and and the cellular activity which 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 led to the composition and the growth of that thing i think that's what shakespeare's like i think i think shakespeare's words are always kind of touching this idea of growth of pasts presence and futures as something which is moving his words themselves are active with the same process they and so when i say you know there's a kind of i think shakespeare's sort of autopoiesis is i i think about that idea that that it's a world which it's 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 composed of itself by itself as it were and, and is kind of self-governing in that way and it, and it supplies its own laws what shakespeare's always doing is he's kind of queering the grammar such that you can't simply kind of standardize syntax i don't and this is why shakespeare has this very disobedient relationship to rhetorical theory and rhetorical practice the kind of supposed laws of proper speech of decorum and so forth that were around at the time he knows them all but he just doesn't believe in them you know and and he and after a certain time he just simply doesn't observe them at all he just kind of he sort of just mashes together all these supposedly separate um rhetorical functions for example Professor Philip Davis is fascinated with the effect that Shakespeare's language can have on us. With Shakespeare, the effects, particularly in performance, but also in reading, are sudden and visceral and get to you at a level prior to mentalisation. This is why studying Shakespeare at school for GCSE or A-level is often too slow and cumbersome with context and themes and images. In Shakespeare, in literature, life is much more like verbs than it is like nouns. Suddenly uh, things happen and you're not quite sure what it is, but you sort of recognise it. As in the functional shift, you're not quite clear as to where it's come from or what, or what, what has changed to make it so strange, nonetheless you recognise something and you recognise that it's taken away the, the film, the surface, and taken you somewhere else. He became convinced that neuroscience might be able to shed some light on the way that the dramatic onrush of Shakespeare's language works on our consciousness. So he teamed up with neuroscientists at Liverpool University using ECG and fMRI machines to monitor the brain activities of people as they first of all read An Ordinary Text as a Control and then Shakespeare. The entire study concentrated on Shakespeare's use of functional shifts in words like cichlid, trying to find out what effect it might have on us. Said by some brain scientists that there are parts of the mind, of the brain, that are particularly geared to the um, understanding of nouns and some that are to do with the understanding of verbs, and another part that's to do with understanding of adjectives. Let's say that's true. Well, what does the brain do when it finds something that it thought was an adjective but suddenly it's turned into a verb, cichlid? I am cichlid. Is it a noun, a verb, an adjective? What is it? Philip found that when a reader reaches a functionally shifted word like cichlid, the results of their brain scans are off the charts. There is a sudden spike of attention. The graph leaps, the mind is excited, the uh, brain responds with a sudden surge. What's going on? What does this mean? Why is it this way round? Um, I'm pulled forward, I've hardly got any time and yet I've got to try and work it out even 
as I go along or slightly behind Shakespeare's speed and you're having to use what Hamlet calls the mind's eye. The scan suggested that in a split second, new connections are being forged between different parts of the brain as the reader tries to catch up with Shakespeare's fast onrush of complex words and images. As you work your way through Shakespeare's passages, um, they're as, as difficult, as complicated um, neural pathways that Shakespeare's creating for you to feel your way along. And, and that's why moments of, of realisation seem like a release. This is the dramatic emergence of consciousness that bursts upon you in a form of realisation. And that's what the power of Shakespeare is able to do. It's something which is often remarked upon with Shakespeare in performance. It all happens so fast, it can feel impossible to keep up with it. I mean, one of the really interesting things is Shakespeare writes with this figurative density. He's got all these multiple sort of shoots of possibility. They often can't be understood in the moment. They can't be apprehended in the moment by the audience, nor by the actor often. They certainly can't be expressed in... In, in the way you, you, you there's, there's no way of expressing all of these multiplicities in an act of speaking. All you can do is say the words, you know. All of this does seem to beg a question about Shakespeare as a writer. How on earth does he do it? It's a question which is probably unanswerable. I, mean, I think there's something about Shakespeare which is just inscrutable and, and um, almost impossible to imagine. I mean, it's it's much easier, I think. It's much easier to imagine Joyce you know Joyce is known as you know he's 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 writing where he's got an incredible um fertility and endless puns but you can kind of see the workings in Joyce you can kind of see where it comes from and it might be unbelievably clever but you can kind of see it whereas with Shakespeare there's there's a sense in which the the sources of this seem so almost instantaneous it's quite hard to credit the processes which made it, I think. You dwell on something and you see all of these implications, all of which seem to speak to the moment, um, speak to the emotions of the moment. He's got this slightly weird and uncanny ability to, to speak words which seem to have a life of their own at the same time as being absolutely indentured to the particular moment. And I and I'd, 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 I'd find it you know, impossible to explain it. I'd, it's, it's very hard. To, you can't, it's not... I wouldn't see Shakespeare as someone who's sitting... I mean, I don't. Who knows? I don't imagine Shakespeare as someone who sits there going, um, you know, st stu you know, st studying words or getting a little taxonomy of words and thinking about it. I think he just does it sort of instinctively. He allows the writing itself to generate its own possibilities very often. He lays down a word. That word begins to, as it were, breed and kind of open up and so forth. And then other ones follow. And this, this leads to other metaphors which grow from them at the same time as it begins to suggest mental processes and 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 so on I, mean, I think that 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 kind of improvisational um nature of the language begins to uh write itself or something i don't i, I don't really know i mean i think it's a um it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's if we knew it would be diff it wouldn't be as good so to return one more time to neuroscience, perhaps the most intriguing part of Philip Davis's investigations is the discovery that Shakespeare's invention of word like cichlid lights up a very significant part of the brain. It's called the left chordate nucleus. And the fact that it's so engaged might give clues as to why so many people continue to read Shakespeare to find meaning and sustenance in his plays and in his language. The left chordate 
nucleus is particularly stimulated by something like cichlid, it becomes powerful. It is a part of the brain that's shaped tiny as it is, like a seahorse. And the head is often activated, again, by forms of recognition. The tail of that seahorse is a reward mechanism. The seahorse lights up and simultaneously with the recognition, you get the reward of a certain sort of feeling of excitement and liveliness. This is why Shakespeare makes you feel suddenly more alive, because in the midst of the dark, something lights up. You fully understand something. And what's more, just to end this little story of a tiny part of the brain, the left chordate nucleus is underactivated in people who have depression. They are, as we all are at times, going around in circles, repeating things, just stuck in, automatic. And the, the capacity for new meanings, for surprise, is dulled by the melancholy. If this part of the brain becomes activated more, you are less depressed, you are more alive, you are more alert to new meanings. That's one of the senses in which the liveness of Shakespeare in performance, the liveliness of him in the brain, the coming to life of, of new words has internal effects, psychological and nervous, that are extraordinary. And you can feel those without the equipment of neuroimaging, but simply in the experience of sudden, sudden enlivenment in performance. This is not to say that reading literature is a cure. That would be silly. What I'm saying is that powerful literature gets to places that people need to be able to talk about. It's not that they haven't had those experiences, but if you have the experience and, and can't talk about it and have no one to talk about it or haven't got the words for yourself, then you're losing a lot of yourself. So it may not be that it makes people more hygienically well uh, by some magic, but it does make them more. And what does it make them more? It makes them more alive and more of themselves because that's what literature does. It holds for us human experience and reminds us suddenly of our own.